Hi, it's Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adara Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book coming in 2024 by HarperCollins. Pre-order now, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, wherever you buy your books. We have to pull that curtain back. We have to know what we're doing because our patients are relying on us. They're, in the best of cases, they're trusting us with their lives in every facet, not just their health, but their financial health and their financial future and their family's financial future. I mean, some of the stories I go into have widows and widowers working in hospital laundries for no pay in order to try to work off their debts. Like these are crazy things that patients are made to go through. And even if we're not the ones directly doing it, like. We are the face of medicine. We are the trusted voices, we hope, and we got to earn it. And in order to earn it, we have to know our medicine. We have to know, you know, what antibiotic to prescribe. We have to know what test to administer, but we also have to know how to keep our patients out of harm's way. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. In today's episode, I'm so glad to bring you my conversation with Dr. Luke Masek. Luke is an emergency medicine physician in Boston. He practices at Harvard Medical School and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's also a historian, and he's an author. Today, we're speaking about his second book entitled, Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection in American Medicine. Let me read you a little bit about the book. Your Money or Your Life reveals how medical debt collection became a multi-billion dollar industry and how everyday Americans are made to pay the price. Luke weaves patient stories into a history of law, finance, and medicine to show how debt and debt collection are destroying the foundational trust between doctors and patients at the heart of American medicine. This fight to stop aggressive collection tactics has brought together people from all corners of the political spectrum. But if we want to better protect the sick from financial ruin, we have to understand how we got here. And Luke walks us through how we got here. Now, Luke came to me through two friends, doctors Allison McGregor and Jay Baruch. And it turns out, I'm not sure why Luke and I had not met previously. We have a lot of geographic mapping. We both have spent time in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Providence, Rhode Island, Boston, Massachusetts. Let's get to the conversation. How are you different having written this book? I think a little more grizzled in terms of the work I am doing. I still have probably a fair dose of idealism about what medicine is, what it can be, what it should be, but it's kind of peeking under the hood and seeing what happens after we care for patients and what they are made to go through if they can't pay their bills has been really difficult to stomach, but also I think necessary because I don't think my blindness before to what was going on with patients was was a good thing. I don't think it's good for us as physicians. I don't think it's good for our patients to not know what goes on after our encounters. So I feel like the scales have fallen from my eyes and it was a, a rude awakening, but one that I needed. Yeah. I wrote, took notes as I read, and I felt as if you tore the scab off the wound that is medicine and not in a bad way, in a good way. And to reassure listeners, like I loved this read. The book is so well written. 
that I was able to fly through it. I comprehended all of it. And I really have to say that I loved some of your use of words. I'm a big word person. Draconian was used, paucity, dunning, paper tiger, like some really good stuff. Like nice work, doctor. Oh, thanks. I mean, I, I love words too. I mean, I feel like the good turn of phrase is worth so many explanations that are just, uh, you know, rote and boring. My favorite authors are people like, you know, George Orwell, Kurt Vonnegut, people who can tell the most dreary or, or sad stories in ways that sometimes make you laugh, sometimes make you cry, sometimes, and, but would always keep you interested. So uh, I did try to do that. And I think I, I also tried to incorporate a lot of, a lot of characters, you know, this is the world of debt collectors. This is the world of patients going through it. This is the world of anarchist activists really trying to change the way medicine is done. So like, I do think there are some interesting kind of unforgettable characters in this story that I hope to, hope to introduce people to. You perfectly set me up to talk about some literature. I too am a fan of Kurt Vonnegut. And one of my favorites is Mother Night. And the lesson of Mother Night is we are who we pretend to be. So we must be very careful who we pretend to be. And that ties in perfectly with this because you and I have both had this experience as emergency physicians, trying to convince a patient to say yes to a test, trying to convince a patient that they do need to stay in the hospital when they're telling us, no, 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 I got to go. I can't afford this. I don't have insurance. And we were not completely educated. And I'm in with you on this, which is partly why I really love this read because I think when as a physician, as a healthcare worker, you realize the way the system is set up and what it does to people who cannot afford to pay their bills, you feel nauseated. It makes you sick. You feel ashamed. There's betrayal. Now, listeners, don't worry. This is not all negative emotion, but you know, all of it, you're like, I can't believe there's a wizard and it's just a man behind that curtain. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely did not know when I was trying to convince patients to stay for the stress test or to, you know, be admitted for their worsening cellulitis or significant pneumonia that I was setting them up for financial disaster later on. I would, I would come to learn that some of the hospitals I was working in were suing patients and garnishing their wages, putting them on payment plans that had them paying single visits back for five, six, seven years, even if they were single moms or recent immigrants or folks living on disability income, like this crazy stuff. I didn't fully realize it, but we have to pull that curtain back. We have to know what we're doing because our patients are relying on us. They're in the best of cases, they're trusting us with their lives in every facet, not just their health, but their financial health and their financial future and their family's financial future. I mean, some of the stories I go into have widows and widowers working in hospital laundries for no pay in order to try to work off their debts. Like th these are crazy things that patients are made to go through. And even if we're not the ones directly doing it, like we are the face of medicine. We are the trusted voices, we hope, and we got to earn it. And in order to earn it, we have to know our medicine. We have to know, you know, what antibiotic to prescribe. We have to know what test to administer, but we also have to know how to keep our patients out of harm's way. You famously share a story about Margaret Atwood talking about medical debt. Yeah, Mar Margaret Atwood, anyone who, who's read Handmaid's Tale knows Margaret Atwood, but she also wrote a book about debt. She gave a series of lectures in Canada, the Massey Lectures, a famous series of lectures in 2008. And her chosen topic was debt, auspicious timing for it. Her book called Payback 
she wrote afterward based on those lectures. And she writes about her own family because when her brother was born, she writes, her mother and father were not allowed to leave the hospital after the delivery until they paid off their debt. And they really weren't even allowed to leave until her father received his next paycheck and could pay off the debt from their visit. This is Canada. You know, we now know it as the place with single payer healthcare that we always look to as like, oh, look at them. They got it done. This is a living memory for a very famous Canadian that her own family wasn't allowed to leave the hospital because of debt. And that's not a situation that would ever happen, you know, happen today in Canada. Canada doesn't, doesn't have a perfect healthcare system, but they don't detain people for inability to pay. So she points to that as kind of a horrific example of what's possible when systems don't work, when they don't look out for people. But as I was to find out, that sort of situation is not so far-fetched where we live today. I mean, we have people being arrested if they don't show up for their court hearings over medical debt. So medical detention is a reality in America today in a way that it was in Canada 60 years ago and was in debtors' prisons in the UK 200 years ago. But we still live with that today, insanely enough. There are many things that you have shared that resonate with me. And you've talked about a single payer system that we don't have that in the United States. And that may be one of the ways to find our way out of this morass that is the medical debt in the United States. Can you say more about that? Yeah, sure. Single payer, another name for Medicare for all or whatever moniker you want to put on it is basically what Medicare is just usually in people's minds who are advocating for it, a better version of Medicare, right? So you have the government paying providers for care. It's not nationalized in the way the NHS is in the sense that doctors aren't employees of the government, but the government is the main single payer for healthcare services. The advantages of that are manifold. The biggest one probably is that you don't have private health insurers. Did you just use the word manifold? (laughs) I did. (laughs) I should probably stop using that word when I'm talking, but uh, yeah, I did. I love Um, the word. (laughs) They are many and numerous, (laughs) many advantages. So one is that you don't have private health insurers, right? You're not paying some middleman to skim off the top while denying care that is medically necessary. And the other is you can structure the system as you see fit as a polity, right? So if you don't think that people should pay at the point of care, which we know keeps people from necessary medical care, then you can say that care is free at the point of care, that we are paying for this through our taxes and you shouldn't be charged every time you need to access care when you're sick. So, you know, other countries have single payer healthcare systems. Some other countries have devised ways to reach universal healthcare with some interesting mixes of public payers and private payers. It doesn't necessarily have to be a single way. And there's probably going to have to be a stepwise fashion we get to a better system given the system we have now. But single payer is, you know, is to me a North Star, a way to cut the middlemen out of medicine to get a more rational, more caring system that doesn't cost nearly as much and gets you much better outcomes. I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books.
In the book, you walk us through this history of medical debt, paying for medical debt, the initial relationship between, we'll say, physician and patient and how debts were settled to where we are today. And again, it's very comprehensible. It's very comprehensive. And part of the reason why I think it's so readable is you share stories and you've alluded to some of these stories. I want to ask you about your voice. Here on the Visible Voices podcast, we're curious about people's voices. And so, Luke, I'm wondering, when did you realize you had a voice, uh, in this case, your voice to tell this story about medical debt in the United States? And when did you start using that voice? Well, I started out being interested in medicine because I was interested in global health. I was specifically interested in the fact that so many people were dying of diseases that they didn't need to die from relatively simple, treatable diseases. And in college, I was involved in AIDS activism. We were protesting against uh, the US government for trade agreements that extended the life of patents in poor countries in ways that we knew would hurt people. We were protesting drug companies that were denying people access to necessary medicine. And we were acolytes of, uh, another word, of Paul Farmer, a teacher of ours and someone who I ended up working with as a research assistant and consider a mentor, as many did. And his example of how to be a physician and really care about the medicine and to know the medicine inside and out and to write about patients in ways that were respectful and deep and meaningful and understanding of history and political economy and context was super powerful for me. I mean, reading Infections and Inequalities, AIDS and Accusation, Pathologies of Power, I remember tearing through these books. It was a winter break in freshman year. I basically sat in bed and read all of his books at once. And I was a changed person. And in some ways, I, some ways I, I kind of wish that I, I could get back to before that time sometimes because not knowing so much of the pain of the world can be, um, can be like a burden lifted, but I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't go back because I think that knowing it and being in community with people who care equally or more is just such a powerful feeling and having a purpose in life was really possible after that. And so he was always a great example for me, but I met so many people uh, through him and through that work, through global health that I you know, still call friends and still call family. So that was really the moment. Our next episode will be about books that forever changed us. And like, had we not read them, we wouldn't have had our eyes open because once our eyes are open, they can't be closed. You can't unsee it. And that brings us resoundingly, I want to use that to the focus of the book, which is medical debt. So one of the ways that your eyes were opened and perhaps maybe started your using this voice was your experience in residency. You and I have a lot of geographical mapping, Boston, Providence, Philadelphia, but this story started in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, I was a, a resident in emergency medicine in the Brown program. And I loved those hospitals. I mean, Rhode Island Hospital was a great place to train. And is full of some of the most dedicated, knowledgeable physicians and nurses and techs I've ever met. At the same time, I knew that my patients there would sometimes tell me that they were worried about following our recommendations. They couldn't afford their medicine. They, they worried about staying overnight. Sometimes they didn't think that we had their best interests at heart when we were ordering things like chest x-rays or CAT scans. They told me I was trying to make a buck off them. And I, at first, I didn't know what to make of these statements. I mean, I 
I didn't want to believe them. I certainly didn't think that was what I was in it for when I was working, you know, 12 hour shifts, six days a week, you know, for $60,000 for four years. But I wondered, I wondered if there was something to it. And I'd heard about things like this going on. I'd, I'd heard about patients being sued and having their wages garnished and having their bank accounts emptied and having their homes foreclosed on. But I thought it was, I thought it was a crazy thing that a few hospital bad actors did and it wasn't a widespread practice. I'd heard about it at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I'd heard about it at Yale back in the day. I had some vague notion that this happened some places, but it didn't happen where I was working. Or at least I, I just wanted to make sure. So I went to the county courthouse and I started looking at court records and I found out it was happening. It happened a week prior. <laughs> it was happening to hundreds of patients a year and it was happening right under my nose. And I didn't know, and I, but I felt ashamed for not having known. I felt ashamed for having told my patients they had nothing to worry about when they did have something to worry about. That was my moment of awakening right there. Yeah. I mean, it's such an amazing story. You did your own investigative journalism, so to speak. You tried to get your write-up published. Maybe larger outlets were like, no. And you did ultimately publish what you found in a smaller outlet. Take the listeners through that story. I was trying to think what to do. I knew I couldn't keep going to work while this was happening. I couldn't face another patient who showed up late with a heart attack or stroke for fear of the bills or try to convince another patient that they should indeed stay overnight when they were worried about their bill. When I knew that they might face legal action if they didn't pay up and pay up quickly. So I, um, I wrote an op-ed and I sent it to a bunch of outlets. Like you said, they weren't interested. Eventually I sent it to Uprise Rhode Island, a small blog run by a progressive muckraker in Rhode Island named Steve Alquist. And I read his stuff. I loved this stuff, but I didn't think anyone else read it. So when the post went up, I titled it Lifespan Stop, Stop Suing My Patients. <laughs> I was trying to be as direct as possible. I figured it wouldn't make much noise. But that night I got a call from my boss in the hospital who told me that her bosses <laughs> were telling her that I had some meetings that I needed to sit in on. <laughs> I had some folks I needed to talk to in the C-suite. And I did. And they were initially, they initially told me that I was wrong, that the hospital wasn't suing patients. I showed them the court records and they eventually, to their credit, they reversed course. They severed ties with their debt collector and they dismissed the cases, which I was happy to see. But the fact that the folks who I thought should know, didn't know, and I believe them that they didn't know, I still do, that that was a revelation to me too. Like, what is going on? What is going on that, that I didn't know that we were suing patients, that they didn't know that we were suing patients? And as soon as I brought it up, at least in a public forum, they were willing to stop it entirely. Like, that should tell us something. There's a weird thing going on where, like, we believe we're doing something that is wrong, that we're all being deluded or deluding ourselves. <laughs> and so I, I needed to stop deluding myself, but I also wanted to help figure out how did we get here? How did this happen? We talk about the U.S. healthcare system being actually a sick care system. And for me, this kind of goes to an even deeper, uneasy level of a sick care system. Like this piece that is the U.S. healthcare system is sick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what is healthcare at base? Why do we go into medicine? We want to alleviate suffering. We want to, if we can, cure disease, restore people to health. None of us went into this to throw our patients in courthouses and in jail cells. Like that's, that's the exact opposite of the humanistic spirit, what Paul Farmer used to call expert mercy that led us into this work. And so I, realizing that I was a part of this system that was 
leading people into legal jeopardy was was so disheartening was just so deflating and medicine's hard enough you know like you go through all this training you get through covid you get through uh the rigmarole that you and you know the system isn't right you know you know we live in an unjust country and unjust world like you know that so so much of what we do isn't isn't right and you try to slog through it and you try to make the best of it that you can but this was just <laughs> a step too far, right? We just, I just could, I could not stomach this one. <laughs> what struck me is, you know, it's a perfect formula that we see a lot in America in terms of depersonalizing it. So take the debt collection out of the hands of the physician, out of the hands of the hospital, bring in a third party. The third party deals with the collection, does the quote, dirty work. We don't see it. We don't talk about it. We don't learn about it. So it must not be happening. And guess what? It is. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about that and actually, you know, tell everybody where we are today in 2023 compared to when you first started doing your investigating for this book. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually part of the sales pitch of those third-party debt collection agencies. Many of them specialize in medical debt collection. It's a huge part of their business. I mean, medical debt is the biggest line item on credit reports you know, in the country. But in some studies, it's more than every other kind of debt combined. So this is a huge part of the debt collection business. And part of the way that they sell their wares is they say, you know, you're a doctor. It's not your job to collect from folks who can't pay. That's beneath you. You know, that's not what you do. That's not what you're trained for. But that's what we do. You know, that's our job. That's what we're good at. We are adept at this. And so they push this the sales pitch and it worked. It worked for doctor's offices. It worked for hospitals. And it's a source of a lot of their wealth now, but it's also the source of a lot of our ignorance about what's going on. Because now that even hospital billing and collections departments are farming out their self-pay accounts, you know, the folks who don't get covered by insurance entirely, they farm those out to third parties. They're not involved in it either. And so as aggressive as those third-party collection agencies want to be, like they feel relatively free to do so. I think that's a large part of the reason we don't really know about what's going on. I will say that, and to the second part of your question, like a lot of things are getting better in this world. I mean, in 2018, 2019, 2020, we started to see some studies coming out about the frequency of this debt collection. And even a couple of weeks ago, JAMA published a, a survey by the LeapFrog Group showing that a third of hospitals will engage patients in some sort of legal action if they can't pay. But the number of lawsuits being filed is in some other studies going down quite precipitously. I mean, it started with COVID, right? Since the courts were actually closed. (laughs) And then a lot of hospitals realized that it would seem in bad taste (laughs) or or unconscionable perhaps to, to sue patients when their lives were completely out of their hands during the COVID crisis. And so a, a lot of debt collection lawsuits halted. And they, in some estimations, they haven't actually picked up again. In Maryland in particular, and in some other studies in the Midwest, we've seen that the number of debt collection lawsuits have gone way down and stayed down, at least for now. So they still exist. People are still getting sued. People are still getting taken to court for debts they can't pay and won't pay. But some things are getting better. Some states have taken some action. The federal government has taken some action. So you know, this isn't an insoluble problem. In addition to reading the book and learning more, listeners that want to do something, what's one thing they can do? I would say if you work for a hospital, and many of us do, I mean, three quarters of physicians now work for large corporate entities, large practice groups, large hospitals. Some of us work for private equity or for health insurance companies directly. If you work for one of these 
entities, especially if you work for a nonprofit hospital, they have to have a financial assistance program, right, by law. And it has to be widely publicized. So you should be able to find it online. Find out what your hospital's financial assistance program is. What is the cutoff at which people can get free care, right? For most hospitals, it's around 200% of the federal poverty level, or about $60,000 for a family of four. If you make less than that amount, you should be able to qualify for, for in most hospitals for free care. And they have to apply for it. And sometimes it's onerous, but you can tell your patients, right? If they come in saying that they are worried about paying their bills, you can tell them, you have rights here and our hospital has a free and discounted care program and you might well qualify for it. Um, and there are even people who can help you apply for it. There's a group called Dollar Four that I've come to know and really admire, even joined the board of recently. They will, for free, you know, in solidarity with patients, help you apply for charity care if you just reach out to them, dollar4.org. They will help you apply for financial assistance. So there are people out there willing to help. And I think we should be a part of pointing people in the direction of those solutions. Again, another formula that we see of self-educate, advocate, and use your privilege to make it better for those that don't have access. Yeah, absolutely. And then there are larger solutions too, right? There are groups like Physicians for a National Health Program that are pushing for a single-payer healthcare system, organized tens of thousands of uh, doctors around the country. And being a part of that movement has been a real source of hope for me that I'm helping move us towards something bigger and uh, bigger than myself, right? We can't do this alone, right? Working in concert with other folks, like-minded people who really want to work in a system that is decent to our patients is something that helps me wake up every morning and keep going to work. So um, if you're looking for more folks doing that sort of work, then there are groups like the Debt Collective, Physicians for a National Health Program, and other groups I read about in the book who are doing good work. Your legacy. I always hope it's to work with other people pushing for a better world, right? But I I do hope that I'm part of a movement that builds a healthcare system that is decent, that in their moments of greatest vulnerability, patients can turn to and know that we are looking out for them, that we have earned their trust. And right now we're not there. We're not even close, but I do hope I'm part of moving us in that direction. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Dr. Luke Misak for joining me in conversation. Thank you so much. Three take-home points for you, audience. Number one, it can never be a bad thing when a logo file and a bibliophile sit in conversation and discuss books and discuss words. A logophile, as you probably gleaned, is a lover of words and a bibliophile is a lover of books. And it's always a joy for me to be in conversation with someone who loves two things that I also love. Next, healthcare. Healthcare providers, healthcare workers, healthcare team members. I do think we owe it to ourselves to educate, learn about the medical debt collection system, about healthcare dollars, where they go, who pays for them, and who suffers when those dollars cannot be paid. And finally, for those of you that like a really good read with really good stories, with aspects that you will certainly relate to because all of us interface with the healthcare system, please pick up Luke's book, Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection in American Medicine. It's a fantastically written book. It's a good read. And you will learn about many aspects of the history of medicine in our country. That's all I have for you this week, audience. See you next time.
The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DePorto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued. <laughs>